The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. This Advent season, we are remembering those in our world who struggle in poverty. Last week, we thought about those who are homeless, suffering in this world without adequate food, shelter, or safety. Today, we remember that poverty can refer to other things as well, such as loss of dignity or brokenness of relationship. There are many in this world who do not know what it is to be loved. They do not know what it is to be cherished by anyone, or even what it is to be touched by other humans in a caring way. Our own ministry teams who have traveled to India have had interaction with a class of people who are so reviled by the greater society that they have been deemed unworthy of physical touch. And these issues exist much closer to home as well. Who are the people in our very own society who are seen by others as lesser than? Who are the people in our very own province or city who have never experienced loving family or healthy friendship, or even closer than that, who are the people in our own lives with whom we are living in broken relationship, where years of hurt and pride have caused what seems like irreparable damage. In this season of Advent, we pause to remember that for each of us, our relationship with God once seemed broken beyond repair. Our sin was a wall that separated us from a perfect and holy God, and there was nothing we could do to change that. But God sent his son Jesus to be born as a baby, to live as a man, and to die as payment for our sins, effectively giving us each the opportunity to turn to God and enjoy a new and unbreakable relationship with him. Truly, this is the best news we could ever have. So this Christmas, may the joy of that good news lead us in several ways. May we give much thanks and worship to our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have been given restored relationship that we so crucially needed. And let us each prayerfully consider how we might encourage healing for the relationally broken in this world. And in our own lives, let us ask God to guide us in how to humbly and lovingly seek to make things right in whatever broken relationships we are in. As we read in Ephesians chapter 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming here so that we might know relationship with you. Help us to extend your love to others as well. Amen. Amen. It's so good to worship uh, the Lord with those familiar songs and Christmas carols uh, at this time of year. I was thinking this morning as we were standing uh, worshiping, there is a scripture I just want to turn to in Hebrews. Um, it's found in Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, it's kind of that, that famous passage of the Faith Hall of Fame where some of the Old Testament saints are listed. And uh, it's interesting that here we are in our study of David. And in studying David, he gets, he gets lumped in in Hebrews chapter 11 talks about David and Samson and Samuel, prophets. And, and it says in verse 34, whose weakness was turned to strength. That's what it says about David and a bunch of others. Whose weakness was turned to strength. I want to suggest to you this morning, and I'd like you to remember this until the end of the message, I would like to suggest to you that the storyline of your life that you're writing is not going to be the storyline that ends up being written by God at the end of the age. 
you'd like to see the chapters highlighted with nice titles that come about through your strengths. And yet the, the storyline that's going to be written when that book is closed one day and both covers are on the chapters and all the contents are there, the, the, the chapter headings are going to go from maybe some of the weaknesses and the frailties and even the failures of your life. So hold on to that thought as we go back to look at the life of David. We've been studying the year, uh, David since we started the year in 2015. This is the year of David, and we're finishing off uh, pretty much this morning. We took a break in the middle of the summer to study the book of James, but what a life David lived. Here he is, this young boy, shepherd boy, youngest of eight brothers, and he's out in the fields, and, and the Lord calls him in, and he's anointed as king. He's this hero of Israel overnight because of killing Goliath. He is transformed into this hero from being this shepherd boy on the hills of Bethlehem. Anointed as king, but not acknowledged as king until several years later. Conscripted into Saul's army. Victory to victory, becoming famous. And then come these dark days when for approximately 10 years, he's like a vagabond hiding in caves and deserts and running from King Saul in fear of his own life. He even goes at the end of that season of time to the land of the Philistines, and for a year and four months, he's, he's hiding out there. Then finally returning to, to Judah to be the king of the one tribe of, of Judah, uh, he, he experiences this civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Finally, he is crowned king. At the age of 30, he's crowned king of all of Israel and Judah, and yet all kinds of problems exist. There's still battles to fight internally and externally. And he establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem. And it seems like thing is going, things are going well. There's peace in the land after many years of fighting. And, and there's a consolidation of his power. And then comes that terrible dark time of moral failure. When David commits adultery with Bathsheba and to cover up his sin, he, he, he commits murder. And there's, these, there's at least a year, perhaps longer, of silence. It's a dark time. There's, no, there's nothing in Scripture about this season of time. God's hand was heavy upon David. And then after this season of time, God sends Nathan, the prophet, to tell a story to David. And David is caught, and he's convicted, and he recognizes his sin. He repents. He turns back to God, and God forgives his sin. But the consequences of his sin continue to linger in his family, for the seeds have been planted. And so in his sons, his oldest son commits rape, another son commits murder, and there's rebellion. There's some, another son, he tries to take the kingdom away from his father. And so the end of 2 Samuel that we've been studying, uh, we see a lot of, of sorrow. I wish that I could tell you that as we finish the, the book of 2 Samuel this morning, and as we look at the final days of David's life, that, that he ends up in this rocking chair, an old contented king and father and grandfather with his children and grandchildren at his feet, calling him blessed. But that's not the way the scriptures give the account. In fact, this morning we're going to look at one of the most important stories in the life of David. When we see as an old man he commits an error that is grave, 
and problematic in his kingdom, not just his family, but his kingdom. You see, David was a man after God's own heart. Chapter 13 of 1 Samuel said that. Until we took up, put up the decorations for Christmas, we had banners up here. And on this side it said, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You see, as a man after God's own heart, God was so concerned of guarding that heart of David. And in his old age, that heart began to be corrupted by sin. In fact, God could see, because he's the one who searches hearts, he could see that pride was seeping into that heart, having been calloused. And so God has to deal with this cancerous pride in David's heart, and a severe mercy has to be given. That's the scripture that we're going to look at this morning. Before we turn to it, let me describe it a different way, maybe thematically. We're going to be talking this morning about the difference between the sins of the flesh and the sins of the spirit. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever distinguished between sins like that. Sin is sin, I understand, and God judges sin and, and so on. But, but the scriptures seem to differentiate and Today, as we look at the life of David portrayed, we're going to see the difference between the sins of the flesh and the sins of the spirit. Simply put, the sins of the flesh are the sins that we commit that have to do with the physical body that we live in. And the sins of the spirit have to do with the spirit, things like attitudes and motives and things that you cannot see. We see the distinction in various places in Scripture. For example, the Pharisees were very, very proud of not being committing some of the sins of the flesh. And yet Jesus had some of his most strong language because they were very guilty of committing sins of the Spirit. We see another example perhaps in Jesus' time of, of his Last Supper. And there present are two disciples, Peter and Judas. And we see the difference there. In Peter, the sins of the flesh take over that he denies knowing Jesus. But the sin of Judas was the sin of the Spirit. We think about the prodigal son parable that Jesus tells. And we see the two sons and we see a difference, don't we? The, the younger son was committing the sin of the flesh. But the older son was brooding in the sin of the Spirit, wasn't he? And so we do see this delineation. We can see it in character references of Scripture that's given to us. We see it as well in David. The sins of the flesh are sometimes called warm-hearted sins, and the sins of the Spirit called cold-hearted sins because, you see, they are underneath the surface. They're in the heart. They're often colder, more cruel, and more calculating than the sins of the flesh, which are sometimes called sins of impulse. Sins of the flesh. Well, we see David back in the throne uh, last week. Doug, Pastor Doug, shared with us about him returning to Jerusalem after having abdicated his throne for a while when Absalom, his son, uh, was in rebellion and, and uh, had conspired against him. David is now king again, but boy, there's still lots of problems. And uh, we're kind of con condensing a lot of stories here, so we can't take a lot of the time final chapters of 2 Samuel, but I do want to end on one very important key story. It's found in the last chapter of 2 Samuel, chapter 24, and we're going to look at it this morning. It's, it's all about the time when David took a census of all the able-bodied fighting men in both Israel and Judah, 
And uh, it says in the scriptures in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, verse 1, it says that it was the Lord's anger that was at the root of the census. It was God who incited David to take a census. Now, that is, is a, a tough pill to swallow when you read the rest of the chapter. It's also a tough pill to swallow when you read the parallel passage of that same account is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1 where we read that it was Satan that rose up against David and incited him to call for a census. So, so here we are, I'm just laying it before you, two parallel passages. One says that God incited David to do this. The other one's saying that Satan incited David to do this. And, and we're left with this dilemma. Now, just so you know, this is not the only time we see this in Scripture. And there are various ways of perhaps understanding it. Perhaps we could say that God, was, who, who is the one who searches hearts and minds, saw into the heart of David and, and let David go on to this track so that he could expose his heart and deal with his sin. Another way of looking at it might be to understand that um, God does this with various people in Scripture. For example, where, where both God and Satan are involved, God permits something that Satan initiates, and then God ends up by having the last word because of his sovereignty over even Satan. We see it in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We see it in the book of Job profoundly. We see it in the New Testament with Peter in, in the final chapters of Luke. And so perhaps it is indeed here as well that God permits Satan to have a certain access to incite David to do something, but God is over it. And so some of the authors of Scripture can say that God did it. God allowed it. I don't know how you, you wrestle that through, but I'm not going to dance around it. There it is. We've got to face it. So David takes a census. In chapter 24, Joab, the commander of the army, resists that. He says, what are you doing? Verse 3, why are you doing this? And yet David overrules him. And so for nine months and 20 days, Joab and some of the other commanders and soldiers of the army are off touring the entire nation of Judah and Israel. And they're looking at every able-bodied man. And they come back with a report. In verse 9, we read that Joab returns. He gives the report to David. In Israel, there are 800,000 able-bodied men who can carry the sword. And in Judah, there are 500,000. And so David gets his way. But God is not pleased. And David knows that God is not pleased. And in verse 10, we, we see we come to our key verse for this morning's message. In verse 10 where it says, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. Interesting, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he said, I have sinned. Here he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. So the question we ask ourselves is the same question Joab asked in verse 3. Why are you doing this? Why was it a great sin for David to count the fighting men? Why was it a very foolish thing that David concluded what it was? Warren Wearsby writes this, 
that David's sin with Bathsheba was a sin of the flesh, a yielding to lust after an afternoon of laziness. But the census was a sin of the spirit, a willful act of rebellion against God. It was motivated by pride, and pride is number one on the list of the sins that God hates. The census showed a lack of faith in the Lord's ability to deliver Israel, even as he had been doing for, for a long time. And it says in chapter 24 that David recognized that it was sin. It was a foolish thing. It was rebellion. I want to share four things, uh, as you can see in your sermon insert this morning. And the first uh, point I want to just clarify is, what does it mean when the NIV uses that language, conscience-stricken? And so the first thing I want to say is that David's own heart condemned him and that no one confronted him in his sin. We don't see anyone like Nathan coming along, telling a little story, and all of a sudden David feeling convicted. It says in the Bible, literally, it says David's heart condemned him. The NIV says conscience-stricken. The NASB says his heart troubled him after he numbered the people. The ESV says that his heart struck him. The King James Version says his heart smote him. The New King James Bible says that his heart condemned him. Some of the softer translations say he felt guilty. His conscience bothered him. The, the bottom line is you and I need to know what David was feeling. I hope you know the feeling of what David is feeling here. I hope that you know what it means to feel in your heart, it, your heart is condemning you. You need to know what that feels like because that's a very important barometer of spiritual life, of the fact that you're alive unto God, that your conscience is not uh, seared, and that you are actually still governable by God's Spirit. Do you know what it's like to have your own heart condemn you? 1 John 3.21 that if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So reverse of that, if your heart does condemn you, you do not have confidence before God. And David in this moment did not have confidence before God. His heart condemned him. The second thing I want to say about this passage is that David's own heart condemned him, not because of what he did, but because of why he did it. The question that Joab asks is legitimate. Why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? You see, it was not a sin to have a census. In Exodus 30, the law of Moses said you can take a census. Even as far as counting just the able-bodied fighting men was an example of Numbers chapter 1. That was done as well, and God did not judge Israel at that time. The issue was not what David was doing, but why he was doing it. God, we must conclude was peering into the heart of David and seeing something very dangerous in this man after God's own heart. And he could see that David's heart was getting harder, colder, more careless, more proud, and he had to do something about it. Have you had the experience as well of doing something that outwardly could look so innocent and yet being condemned by your own heart afterwards because you know that the outward innocent thing that you did, that no one else is going to condemn you for, you know that in your heart you did it because of jealousy, because of bitterness, because of envy, because of pride, or some other reason of the sin of the Spirit. I think we need to have that experience. We're all guilty of that at some point in time. 
Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind in order to reward a man according to his conduct. The Lord searches our hearts and he knows our minds. Would you forgive me for just a moment to step aside and to rant for a moment about something that I struggle with at this time of the year? It comes at me on the radio or somewhere else where at this time of the year we start singing about fictitious characters that are found in fables that wear big red and white suits. And we're told and we are called to worship the songs uh, along with the radio that he sees you, you see, when you're sleeping. And he knows when you're awake. And he knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. And so here is our society running after this, this fable and essentially supplanting the eternal Christ of history who does see you when you're sleeping. He who does know when you're awake. He does see whether you're good or bad, not just outwardly, not just outwardly in your behavior. He is the eternal God who searches everyone's heart. Incredible. He searches everyone's heart. He knows the mind of every person. I have a whole half page, three quarters of a page of scripture we don't have time to look at, but over and over again, the scriptures declare it. The scriptures declare it, that the Lord searches every heart. He understands every motive behind every thought. I, the Lord, my God, he, you test the heart. You are pleased with integrity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Uh, the Bible says that, that we are to draw near to God with a sincere heart. God is looking at the heart. You see, over and over again in Scripture, we see the emphasis on the heart. The intent of David's heart was more important to God than the content of David's sin. You and I would place the content of David's sin with Bathsheba as, the, as a huge sin. And we would place this census taking as a small sin. That's because you and I don't look into the heart. God looked into the heart of David and he saw the intent of the sin with Bathsheba. And he saw the intent of the sin with census taking. He saw two different things. Pat and I, when we were younger parents, read a book by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And in summary form, what is that book all about? It's, it's all about you discipline a child not to the content of their behavior, but the intent of their heart. That's how good parenting is done. I remember when we were <coughs> missionaries in Bolivia and uh, we were in the jungle. Uh, we took the students of the spiritual formation program into the jungle, the Chapari jungle, and, and we had this kind of retreat center, kind of crude place. And, and uh, in, in this patio area with a roof over top, uh, I had this big table, rectangular table up here. And um, on the side of the patio, there was a whole bunch of brick that was, uh, somebody must have been building something. And so we were talking that day about the sins of the flesh. 
And uh, I said to the students, go and grab a brick. And so each of them went over and grabbed the brick. There's about 25 students. And they brought it back. And then I said, I want you to just privately, between you and God, take that brick and bring it up to the front and put it on the table. And you name your sin before God and you confess it. Whatever sin you're struggling with. And so one by one, they came up and they, they essentially built a wall at, on this table between me and them. And we talked about how sin separates us from each other and from us and God. And then after it was all done, the wall was built, I could hardly see over it. I said, tell me, which of, which of the bricks is the sin of pride? And the various ones pointed out, the bottom one, the top one, whichever. And then finally I said, no, friends, the, the, the sin of pride is the table that the wall's built on. Because you see... Pride is the father of all, of all vice and of all sin, just as humility is the mother of all virtue. There's, there's, there's one thing that God cannot tolerate, it is pride. The reason that the pulpit is up here with the Bible on it, and the communion table is down there on your level, is because when the word of God is preached, we sit under it. It is an authority over every one of us. And when we gather around the Lord's table, it is the great leveler of all people. Nobody comes here higher or lower than anybody else. We gather around this table and all pride, all human merit, all kind of stuff we bring in any type of righteousness is all laid bare. We are all on the same level at this table. We all need the mercy of God. And so pride cannot exist in the presence of God. The Bible says in Isaiah 2 that God has appointed a day for all the proud and lofty. He's appointed a day. And it says, and they will be humbled. The third thing I want to say about this passage is that David's own heart condemned him because he knew others would suffer for his sin. There is no way of discussing sin without understanding it is a social disease. That we do not live unto ourselves. That in some capacity, everything we do that is outside of what the will of God would be is going to impact somebody somehow, somewhere. It is inconceivable to understand it. That parents somehow naturally pass on some sin to their children and somehow children sin against their parents and friend sins against friend in any relationship. That's why nurturing followers of Jesus Christ through healthy relationships is so hard because it requires the grace of God as the grease in every joint that moves in relationship. Without that, we're, we're history. We cannot fulfill our mission. And David's heart condemned him because he knew that his sin would, would cause others to suffer. Every time a, a war is fought, every war that has ever been fought, think about this, every war that has ever been fought, directions and decisions were made in war rooms by top generals and the implications of those men had and women had, had effect upon Thousands of people dying on battlefields. And if you study war, you can see there's a lot of pride in leaders of war. And their pride has caused 
thousands of people to die. I cannot give you a nice tight answer this morning as to why it is that in the scripture we're looking at, 70,000 Israelites died for one king's sin. But I can tell you this is not the only time this occurs in history. And I can also tell you that the very God who in his judgment sent a plague that started in the north and went down and killed 70,000 people, the same God in verse 15 that sends the plague in verse 16 stops the plague in Jerusalem as he saw what it was doing. And I want to ask the question, he's, he was grieved over this. God was grieved, it says. And I want to ask the question, where else do we see that happening? And I want to say to you that I think we see it happening when God sent his son in response to sin in this world, offering his son as an innocent sacrifice for sinners. There, the many did not suffer because of the one, but rather the one suffered because of the many. That's what we see on the cross, the one suffering because of the many. That's what Jesus did. That's where we see it. We see in the cross that God sent his son in response to sin. He was grieved as a father to watch his one and only son die. But we also see that it was his incredible mercy that sent him and brought about our forgiveness. David watched helplessly as the plague swept across Israel as it came into Jerusalem and near the palace where he lived, I'm sure he watched helplessly as he heard reports of the plague killing thousands of people. He knew it was due to his sin. And in verse 17 of chapter 24, he cries out to God and he says, I'm the one who's sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family, he says. What a, what a terrible lesson for David. Do you know, when we come to the table of the Lord, as we're going to do in a moment, our response, I think, should be like David's, helpless as we are to do anything to atone for our sin. We remember how God brought our judgment down on the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus. And when we come to this table, there should be something in us, in our hearts, that cries out and it says, why is, the, is it on Jesus to die for me? I should have been the one that died. There should be something in us that cries like David and says, why the Lamb of God die? It should have been me that died on that cross for my sin. And how grateful we can be that God's grace extended even to us that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquity, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Well, finally, I want to say that David's own heart condemned him because ultimately he was a man after God's own heart. We see that God sends the plague. Um, it's killing people. And then in his mercy, God sends the prophet Gad and Gad goes to David and he sells, tells David, you go to this place and you build an altar and sacrifice to the Lord and God's plague will stop. And so he goes to the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite in Jerusalem, verse 18. And Aruna offers to give him the land, but David insists. He says, I will not, I will not offer, uh, take something that did, offer something that cost me nothing. 
So he buys the land, he builds an altar, and he sacrifices on it. And the very last verse of 2 Samuel, the very last verse in this, auto, uh, this biography of David is this verse. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. What a lesson David learned. Now, friends, before we transition to the communion table, I want to say there's, there's one more important thing you need to hear. And I really believe this is where it comes home, and, and you, we will not have time to reflect deeply on this, but I ask you to go home and reflect on it. And that is this. This is where we began with the storyline of our lives and the chapter headings being more about our weakness and failure than about our strengths. I want to, to remind you that the two greatest weaknesses and failures of David are, in the end, the two greatest features of David's legacy. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this, that out of the sin of Bathsheba, God brought about the next king of Israel, Solomon. And out of the sin of taking a census, God brought about the very site, the land that the temple would be built on when Solomon built it. We read that very clearly in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. It says this, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on this uh, threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Incredible. The two most embarrassing, most shameful, don't write about that, please, David would say. The two things that, that are, are least likely in David's book to be written are the very things where David's strengths and legacy is written. God used the pain, the failure, the sin of David's life to raise up beauty and blessing. In the words of Isaiah 61, he comforted the one who mourned. He bestowed on David a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. He made David into a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor and grace. And what God did for David, I want everyone in the hearing of my voice to know, God can do it for you. God can make you that kind of person. He can comfort you who mourn. He can bestow a crown of beauty instead of ashes on your head. He can give you the oil of gladness instead of mourning. He can put on you a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And he can make you, with all the past that you've lived, he can make you into a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor and grace. If you would practice giving over to God every painful experience. If you would practice, whether it is due to your sin or not, giving Him every ounce of your brokenness. If you could just bring to God the, the stuff of your life and trust fully in what Jesus accomplished at the cross, that event that we partake of when we partake of this meal is the most important event in all of human history. If you can just take all that you are in your brokenness and bring it to this table today, Jesus can make something beautiful out of even the mess that you've made. Friends, that's the gospel. 
And that's the message that God wanted to showcase more than any other lesson through David's life. Christmas carols and the story of a figure from ancient history. And yet, it wasn't just two legacies that David gave us. In terms of the king, Solomon, and the temple built. But way down in history, the son and lineage of Bathsheba was our Christ child born. Not only from Hermon, but from Rahab the prostitute earlier. Moab, um, Ruth, the Moabitess, and and the Moabites had been specially cursed by God. And it didn't just give us an ancient temple that could easily be destroyed, but set for us a temple above all that in his glory we may leave every one of our struggles behind and get caught up in him, O oh God, our Father, you who art in heaven, hallowed, hallowed, hallowed be your name, and humble be our name, for we have allowed pride to separate between us and you. May your kingdom, O oh God, grow and magnify and gain power as our kingdom fades away and you, the king of king, comes into our heart and converts our kingdom into yours. We pray, O oh God, that as a people we not only get thrilled when your will is done around the world, but that somehow through us you come into our measly lives and take control and tidy things up for us in ways we can't do ourselves and move us on to the place where we too can leave great legacies from our great failures. Oh God, give us such food for our daily living. Oh God, protect us from our own foolish, sinful ways. Oh God, keep us from going into the shadows and corners of our mind where trouble broods and difficulties compound. Oh God, save us from the evil one for thine, for thine is the kingdom, thine is the glory, and thine is the power 